This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. The Payne Lectureship honors two great uh, supporters of Stanford, Frank and Arthur Payne, who supported international studies at Stanford. And uh, in their memory, their descendants uh, honor them with this lectureship. You all, I hope, have a copy of this little brochure about the Payne Lectureship, and I'd like to read something from it. The Payne Distinguished Professor is chosen for his or her international reputation as a leader with an emphasis on visionary thinking, a broad practical grasp of a given field, and the capacity to clearly articulate an important perspective on the global community and its challenges. Uh, we could do no better than have Peter Piat here as the Payne Lectureship. He so exactly fits what we seek uh, in this professorship. His biography is in this brochure. I don't want to repeat everything that's in there. He's a physician who received a PhD in microbiology, uh, did a postdoc at the University of Washington, uh, where he worked with two people who are now on the faculty at Stanford, Lucy Tompkins and Stanley Falco. He became involved in global infectious disease issues at a very early stage of his career. Uh, was involved in the first outbreak, recognized outbreak of Ebola virus, and is considered one of the co-discoverers of that virus in Africa. And he has had a career-long attachment to Africa in his work. He became, the, uh, <clears throat> he became an associate director of WHO's Global Program in AIDS in 1992, and in 1995 became the first and only uh, incumbent as the executive director of UN AIDS, the UN-wide AIDS-HIV program. Uh, so he has been there for 12 years. He is also the Undersecretary General of the United Nations. Peter is an unusual person. In fact, everybody who spends time at Stanford gets used to being exposed to some very, very impressive people. But even by those standards, Peter is someone who makes you say, wow, when you see all he's done. He's the author of over 500 scientific articles and many books, but he's also somebody who has been in the middle of some of the most important global health issues of our time. When he became the uh, director of, uh, executive director of UNAIDS, he stated that he had three objectives in mind. One was to put AIDS on the political agenda. And for someone with his very, very strong public health background, I dare say it feels more comfortable, easier, more expected, to talk with ministers of health in various countries and enlist their support. But he realized from a very early time that that was not the path to get real action in this very important area. So he wanted to make sure that it came to the attention of the heads of state, of the legislatures, of the people who matter outside the health sector. His second goal was to make it a compelling security and economic issue. And I have to point out to you that although this may sound very logical today and very obvious, it was not in the mid-90s. 
Again, a great leap for someone with a public health background, but one that shows great political sensitivity uh, and, and also a great sense of strategy, because indeed, this was critical to enlisting the support of the people who mattered to, uh, to try to tackle this threat to human health. And finally, his third objective was to mobilize money. Nothing else will happen if you're not successful at that. Now, if you want to look in his background, he was well-trained, obviously an extremely bright guy, but I can't resist pointing out his father was an economist, so maybe this was not entirely unexpected. Peter did not take the most direct route, perhaps, to where he is now, but he is world-renowned, the recipient of many honors, and uh, perhaps the most important person in controlling the global spread of HIV infection and ensuring that people have access to treatment. Please join me in welcoming him. Thank you, Alan. Thank you for these kind words and good afternoon, everybody. Um, it's uh, good to see some uh, familiar faces here, but also many young people, and we need the young people in the fight against AIDS, which is uh, not going to be over tomorrow. And uh, I think it's really appropriate that um, the, uh, the topic of one of the pain lectures is on AIDS, because uh, for an institute as, as yours, this is the ultimate multidisciplinary um, issue of our time. And it will require the, um, the talent of many disciplines to, um, um, to make sure we can end this epidemic. It's my third visit to the Bay Area this year, which is more than uh, the previous 10 years, I think, together. And uh, uh, I think it's, uh, it's appropriate also, this is uh, the area in the world that from a historic perspective is um, has done incredible work in the fight against AIDS. But also, uh, this is the place, San Francisco, where the United Nations was founded. And so it's an important uh, place for us. We're now a quarter of a century in the history of the AIDS epidemic. That's uh, 25 years can be a long time when you're young or in the lifespan of an individual. From a historic perspective, and from, let's call it, long-wave phenomena, it's a very short period of time. So it all depends how you look at it. And um, the truth is that after 25, nearly 26 years that uh, AIDS was described, the end of this epidemic is nowhere in sight. That's a sobering fact. I remember that in 1984, then um, Secretary for Health and Human Services, Margaret Heckler, announced that uh, Bob Gallo had discovered the um, cause of AIDS. And at the same conference, press conference, she announced that within five years that an American scientist would develop a vaccine against AIDS. Now, we are uh, uh, 23 years later. And um, when I'm asked, when will there be an AIDS vaccine, I say maybe in 10 years, maybe five years. and. Uh, we still, we had underestimated in the early days that um, this is not a short-lived phenomenon. And we didn't think through um, 
how to deal with this in, uh, in the long run, because there was a crisis on our hands. And in these 25 years, uh, AIDS has become one of the global make-or-break issues of our time. Of course, AIDS is a disease, it's a, uh, a viral infection, but we should put it in the same league as climate change, as um, mass poverty in the world, as nuclear threats, um, because if the AIDS epidemic is not brought under control, many countries can forget about their development and, uh, and there won't be stability in the world today. So it is really uh, an issue for, um, that will dominate international agendas for quite a while. And what didn't exist 25 years ago is now the fourth cause of death in the world. I mean, that's also remarkable in just in 25 years. And it's the first cause of death for people between 15 and 59 years old in the world. So it's not a detail from any perspective, and, um, and it's still expanding. What I'll do today is to reflect on where we are with the epidemic, what the main trends are, um, but also how uh, AIDS has um, been a, a factor for positive change and how we sometimes can see how a catastrophe can turn into something positive. And finally, some reflections on where to go next. What is the, what is the agenda for, for tomorrow? Where is the long-term view? My own involvement with AIDS started in a um, stealth way, in a, in a way that I didn't even know uh, we were dealing with it. I was then working at the Institute of Tropical Medicine in Antwerp in Belgium. And uh, this was in 1980, one year before the famous report of the Morbidity Mortality Weekly Report, a publication of the Centers for Disease Control, described five young gay men from Los Angeles with a mysterious pneumonia. And uh, we were um, seeing a, a Greek fisherman working in then Zaire in, this, in Central Africa, now called the Democratic Republic of Congo, and who had come down with a generalized infection with an atypical mycobacteria. And I promise you, I won't get into a medical talk, but this is an extremely rare condition that basically only occurs in people with, whose um, immune system has collapsed. And uh, we did an autopsy and we would, you know, we, all we could do was say, yes, the, we don't know what the, the underlying cause is. And uh, we kept everything in the freezer. And in 95, we could identify the virus. We could demonstrate that this was a man who had AIDS. Um, but we were not smart enough to see that this was AIDS this on, on the base of an isolated case. Um, and then it says of 83 that I started working full-time on, on AIDS. Why was that and how did that come about? Um, we were seeing increasing numbers of men and women with what turned out to be AIDS. Um, but we were comparing notes, and they were all coming from Central Africa. And we were comparing notes with our American colleagues, and there were a few big differences. One, we were seeing women. About half of our, um, you know, our uh, patients, and uh, remember, in these days, uh, one of the names for AIDS was 
gay-related <clears throat> immune deficiency syndrome, GRIDS, a really awful name. Um, and uh, I, for one, never understood why a virus would care about the sexual preference of its human host. You know, always try to put yourself in the skin of the other, and so in this case, the virus. And uh, because what is sex from the perspective of a virus? Sex among humans. And that it's just a contact between mucosal surfaces. It's not very romantic, but that's the way it is. And that's a, a way that for the virus to jump from one cell to another. And uh, even if efficiency can be different with different types of intercourse, but uh, the sexual preference uh, is, has nothing to do with it. But it, that was the theology of these days. So we saw all these patients, about 100 in uh, the hospital I was working, and then we said, you know, we must go and have a look where these patients come from, because if we see hundreds here, there must be thousands in the country of origin, because who can afford to come to Europe for medical care? It's either because you're a very senior government official and your government pays for it, or because you've got the money and you can afford that. And so, together with some uh, colleagues from um, the National Institutes of Health, Tom Quinn, with whom I had also trained at the University of Washington with um, um, in infectious diseases, and uh, from the Centers for Disease Control, we went to, uh, to Kinshasa, the capital of Zaire, and um, there I really uh, saw that there was a huge epidemic unfolding. And I saw that when I walked into the medical wards of the Mamayemo Hospital, one of the biggest hospitals in Africa, and I saw all these young men and women in these days, my age more or less, um, emaciated, dying, um, and uh, they all had AIDS. And I'd, been, I'd worked in that hospital uh, in 76 during the Ebola virus epidemic, and I hadn't seen anything like that. And it didn't take a very sophisticated epidemiological investigation to see what had changed. So it was then that I, really, uh, that I realized that we were at the start of something uh, totally unprecedented, because there's no precedence for an AIDS epidemic in our history, something exceptional for which we were quite unprepared. And so much has happened since then. Um, since the beginning of the epidemic, about 65 million people have become infected, slightly less than the, double the population of California. And all these people are connected with each other. It gives a new meaning in, of the word blood relatives. Because everybody, all these 65 million people, when we had sex with each other, um, their mother had it, got blood from one of them, or we're sharing needles. I mean, there's no other way of uh, transmission. And uh, it is a tale of globalization. It's the globalization of risk. We talk a lot about globalization. This is another, and I think the economist could make a very interesting um, study of that. Um, and we are still in the middle of a crisis. 8,000 people are dying every single day from AIDS. 8,000. And in South Africa alone, about 1,000. So this is, uh, by any standard, uh, a crisis. When I look at the epidemic, I see basically three trends at the moment. The first trend is one of globalization. Of course, Africa, particularly Eastern and Southern Africa, have the 
carries the highest burden of this epidemic. We've got countries in southern Africa where 30-40% of adults are HIV positive. Just imagine what that would be. It would be California, you have about 10, 20, 10, 15 million people living with HIV. Um, these are very poor countries. Their health systems can't even cope with, without AIDS. With the burden of AIDS in addition, it is really um, absolutely hard to imagine. Um, but what we're seeing is a globalization now with uh, uh, a spread of HIV that's fastest in the former Soviet republics. That's where we see in two years' time, we saw a 50% increase in, uh, um, in infections and in the big countries in Asia, particularly uh, India, with already well over 5 million people infected and some districts in India, and a district in India that's 1 to 2 million people, you know, 4% infected. China, far less, but it's spreading together with the, you know, where the economy is, uh, is booming. Um, so there is really a, a true globalization happening. Secondly, this feminization. Remember, this started as a problem of uh, white middle-class gay men. Today, half of all people living with HIV, of the 40 million in the world, are women. And in Africa, it's 60% are women. And when you take uh, teenagers, girls, young women, the girls and the women are infected like five to six times more often than boys and young men of their age. Because these girls and women are infected by older men. And it, in this country, it's become the first cause of death in African-American women. So this feminization of the epidemic has many, many implications for how we deal with this epidemic. And um, we haven't really um, made that transition to uh, take the epidemic count and to treat it as something that is in the first place going to affect women again um, as a result of... Um, of what? It's a little bit of biology and it's a lot of society. The biology is such that it is more efficient to, uh, during intercourse to transmit HIV from men to women than from women to men. Um, so that's a matter of efficiency. But that doesn't explain it all. It has to do with women's control over the sexuality. It has to do with um, gender-based violence. It has to do with um, girls being infected by older men. And um, it is probably one of the most um, lethal aspects of inequality between women and men. And we don't only see this in, in Africa, we see it also here in, uh, in the US. I remember last year I was for International Women's Day, I spent a whole day with the a women's collective in Washington, D.C. These were all women of uh, African-American origin and all living with HIV. And their stories were the same stories that I heard in South Africa, I heard in Kenya. The third trend I see is that we're, on, we're at the beginning of the impact of the epidemic. Now that is sobering, 25 years, 
later and you're telling me that we're just seeing to, starting to see the impact, and yet it's true. Um, one of the reasons we do have an epidemic is that it takes a long time before you the epidemic becomes visible, be it for the individual, because you have such an, a long, potentially, a long asymptomatic phase, perfectly healthy, living with HIV, but also in societies it takes a while. And for years, when I, particularly when I was in the beginning, when I was in this job, people told me, you know, I went to, let's say, Malawi or so, and I didn't see anything. You know, as if people would be dying in the streets or so. Um, and it is true, before you start seeing massive funerals, before you see um, millions of orphans, so on, it takes a while, it takes a few decades. And that's what we're starting to see now in the worst affected countries. That's Eastern Africa, Southern Africa. 12 million orphans in, um, uh, in Africa alone. And in some countries like Swaziland, a small country in Southern Africa, um, one in five households is headed by a child because both parents are dead. That's what it means. Other examples, um, life expectancy at birth is one of the major indicators to, um, to measure progress in terms of development in a, in a country. And about everywhere in the world, it goes up every year a little bit. And um, Because of AIDS, it, is, it has collapsed in some societies. Life expectancy at birth today is about 38 years in a country like Botswana. And when you're a 15-year-old boy in Botswana, the chance or the risk that you will die from AIDS before you're 50 is about 50%. That's what it means to be a teenager today in the worst affected countries. If, of course, if the same trends continues and if there is not more action today. Thirdly, in terms of impact is the economy. The economy. On the macroeconomically speaking, there is not much impact that can be measured. Um, but it's for households. Households are driven into poverty when somebody is there in AIDS. And let's not forget that AIDS is affecting the most poor countries. But it's particularly measurable in terms of uh, specific sectors. Um, again, turning to uh, Southern Africa, but we see that also in India, or we see that in, um, in China, um, mining sector, any sector that is dealing with migrant labor, where people are on the move, is transport workers. Um, truck drivers, um, huge plantations in the agricultural sector, they're very, very affected by, uh, by, by AIDS. And um, Anglo-American uh, estimated a few years ago that the AIDS epidemic adds $10 to each ounce of gold, to the production of uh, an ounce of gold. No, don't ask me how much an ounce of gold costs, so I have no clue. But it adds just the AIDS component because of um, you know, the, the cost of the company, uh, illness, having to retrain dead workers and all that. Um, and um, so it's not a coincidence that we have now an increasing number of companies in uh, developing countries that are actually going to invest in HIV prevention for their workers and even uh, paying for treatment. We see the impact on services. We're in an institution of education. Well, um, 
take a country like Tanzania, there are more teachers dying from AIDS than there are trained every year. Now, education, I believe, is the cornerstone for development and is the cornerstone for empowerment of women and for, you know, making sure that girls and women are not going to become infected with HIV also, to narrow it down. Um, so, I read here, Tanzania lost 3,500 teachers per year, and it trains 1,200. Not, not all of the loss is due to AIDS, there's also emigration and so on. But AIDS compounds the impact of it. Um, and then two more examples of impact of the epidemic that we start seeing. Governance, one of the main topics that the Institute is dealing with. Um, in Zambia, between 1991 and 2003, there were 39 by-elections just because the member of parliament died from AIDS. You can see there are obviously always enough candidates for, to run for office. But a lot is getting lost in terms of experience, collective um, memory, and um, it is destabilizing good governance in countries that badly need it. And finally, security. Armies are being affected. 70% of all military deaths in South Africa are due to AIDS. And um, we're quite directly involved in, in UNAIDS in um, peacekeeping operations. Um, after the historic session of the UN Security Council in January 2000, um, chaired by then Vice President Al Gore, and which looked at AIDS as a security issue, a factor for destabilization, and where a resolution charged UNAIDS to make sure that every peacekeeping operation has an HIV prevention component. And uh, this is how we are, have been working with many armies in the world and also been able to document how badly affected um, some armies are, but also how AIDS is and can be a threat to security, not necessarily in the, in the uh, classic sense. Two years ago, I met with Premier Wen Jiubao, the, the, the Prime Minister of China, and uh, I was ready for a tough discussion because China was uh, basically uh, largely in denial about the AIDS issue then. It has changed dramatically since then. And uh, Premier Wen Jiubao um, started his uh, intervention in Chinese, of course, but saying that, you know, um, AIDS is a new type of security issue. And I knew when he said that, that we had won. Because there are only two things that big leaders in the world really catch their attention, and that is the economy and that's security. And, um, and it's true, and in the eyes of the Chinese leadership, um, the security issue is about internal security and stability in society. Because AIDS can destabilize entire societies, certainly when you have 30% um, living with HIV infected and where there's going to be enormous competition for access to something that is not accessible for everybody and that is life-saving treatment. That is a, a, a stability issue, but also it's draining away resources in a huge way.
So basically, AIDS does to society what HIV does to the human body. Um, it weakens the immune system, it weakens in, in the body, but also it weakens the resilience in a society and the mechanisms to, uh, and the ability to um, cope and to deal and to face um, difficult things like, a, like an epidemic. <coughs> now, as I said before, AIDS is not just one of many infectious diseases. It is unique and exceptional. On the one hand, it's unique biologically. I mean, I, I mentioned that the fact that you can be um, totally healthy and asymptomatic for decades, but in the meantime being infectious, that is an incredible challenge. But secondly, um, the societal uniqueness, because it's about sex and drugs. Let's not fool ourselves. That's what makes it so difficult to address it in about every single society. Um, so AIDS is not, you can, you, it won't be normalized to say so. You can normalize it as a medical issue for treatment, yes, and becomes a chronic disease. But I don't know another disease that you know, makes it that, you can't enter this country if you're HIV positive. That's, there is a travel restriction. Um, if you have diabetes or something else, it's not a problem. I'm not talking about immigration. I'm talking about just coming for a day and to give a lecture here. Um, and that's true in 40 other countries in the world. Most of them are in the Middle East. Um, you don't lose your job. You're not uh, beaten up by your husband and, uh, when you say, I'm, uh, you know, I have diabetes or I have uh, whatever. Um, people feel sorry for you, but when you've got HIV, there is this enormous stigma and discrimination that makes it so uh, unique and that has nothing to do with the virus. That has to do with people with, uh, and with, with society. It's something that, is, uh, across, that goes across generations because it's transmissional from mother to child but also because of the orphans. And what makes it unique also is that in contrast to about every other disease and health problem, it affects people in their most productive years of life. Other diseases will kill the babies, the children, and el you know, the elderly. But between, let's say, 20 and 45 and so on, you know, except for violent deaths and so on and accidents and all that, you're not supposed to be affected by, by diseases. And that's where the major economic impact comes from and societal impact. And finally, it's still expanding. There's still an epidemic. So it requires really an exceptional response. And, and how's the world doing? The report is very mixed, but it is not as bad as it used to be. We're starting to see some real results. And I won't repeat what Alan said, because uh, when I got into this job, it is a little variation on it, but uh, I got into this job after having worked on AIDS for about 10 years and studying an unfolding catastrophe got it worse and worse and studying how it's transmitted and all the things in, that I did in Africa with some of our colleagues from Africa from the, and from this country. But I became increasingly frustrated because in my, let's say, scientific academic naivete, I thought, you know, it's enough. We have the data, the facts are clear, and the world is not reacting. What's going on? And I got more and more angry. And, uh, 
I joined some of the activists and I said, you know, this is not normal. And I said, instead of studying the, stu the, the problem, I want to change the world. I want to change the problem. And, uh, and that's when, uh, how I got into this job. I never would have dreamt that I would have become a UN bureaucrat or uh, work in the, in the UN system. And actually, the United Nations has turned out to be a formidable platform to advance this cause. And I've been thinking a lot, what does it take to uh, defeat this epidemic? And I know this is not always popular in the medical community, but the only way is through politics. We can have the best innovation and science and so on, but if there isn't the political leadership, if there isn't the money, it's not going to move. And um, AIDS, therefore, is par excellence a political disease. That has a lot of problems. I mean, I'm regularly um, beaten up by activists of all kind because not doing enough and people dying and so on, and, and that's normal. Um, it's not always easy. But in order to put AIDS on the political agenda, which was indeed my first objective, we had to reposition AIDS, and as Ellen said, as a, uh, you know, a security issue, as a development issue, social and economic development issue. Not as a spin doctor, just because if the facts are not like there, then you shouldn't do that, because that's done a bit too often in politics. Um, but the facts were there, to just reorganize the facts. But secondly, also, to offer a solution. If something is a problem without a solution, then it's not a problem in the eyes of many leaders, because what can you do? You do research. You need to offer solutions. And so we were looking for where do we have results in the developing world? And there we saw Thailand, we saw Uganda, two countries that initially were quite successful in response to AIDS. But unfortunately today, we've seen a reversal, complacency, and in, in Uganda, we have double the number of new infections um, now than two years ago. In Thailand, it's also going up because people thought, we've done it, finished, we can go back to before. Unfortunately, there is no U-turn in AIDS and there's no going back to before to the status ante. But we also, what I wanted was a brilliant alliance, as they call it getting out of the small circle of AIDS doctors and AIDS activists and AIDS public health officials, getting the politicians involved, big business, trade unions in some countries, churches and so on. Look at South Africa. You know, what brings together and what do they have in common? The South African Communist Party, the uh, Chamber of Mines, the Anglican Church, the... Um, the Confederation of South African Trade Unions, uh, the Treatment Action Campaign, and a few others. What do they have in common? AIDS, the fight against AIDS. You could never bring a coalition like that together of such diversity around anything else. And uh, to, to develop that alliance, and that's why I'm, it's, it's very important to make sure that AIDS in, in political terms is a nonpartisan issue. You know, this Congress is going to be, have to be, decide about uh, reauthorization of uh, PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. Extremely important decision. President Bush in uh, 2003, in January, in the State of the Union, said, I'm putting two, uh, $15 billion on the table to fight AIDS in the world. That was a historic decision. It changed the, the landscape in terms of, uh, of funding.
And uh, the whole world be, will be watching now whether the president will ask for a doubling of the, uh, uh, you know, the, the next five years in terms of money, which I believe is necessary, will be at the same level. If it's a doubling, other the European nations will follow. If it's the same level, I think it will go down everywhere. So there is not only a domestic responsibility, but also an international. So I hope this will be one of the non-partisan issues which will get support from all sides. So on all fronts, we've had um, major progress. Um, and that progress, um, we, we're seeing that um, both in terms of less people becoming infected in about all Eastern African countries, in um, Southern Africa, less so, in the Caribbean, um, in um, Cambodia, country that came out of genocide and so on, uh, in some of the Southern Indian states. So that's for the first time that we see it. And secondly, we, we have now two million people on antiretroviral therapy in the developing world. Now, you can say six to seven million need it, and that is true. So we're definitely not there yet. But we're coming from about 100,000, 100,000 people, mostly Brazilians, uh, five years ago. So huge progress, um, but still a long way to go. So we do have um, measurable results, uh, a beginning of um, a return on the investment. And how did that come about? A turning point was 2001. What happened in 2001? A big jamboree in the United Nations, in the UN General Assembly, so-called UN General Assembly Special Session on AIDS. I was with Kofi Annan, and when I was in the middle of it, it was a nightmare. Um, and I thought, another talk shop, you know. Uh, but there were like 40 presidents and uh, prime ministers, and uh, all countries in the world signed what's called a Declaration of Commitment to Deal with AIDS. Why was that so important? One, it elevated the AIDS issue to the top leadership in the world. Secondly, it was the first time ever that the General Assembly had a special session on any health issue, on anything. And uh, where the top leadership said, you know, we care about the health of our people. And uh, thirdly, it produced a roadmap that was a political agreement um, to do what to do about it and tackled some pretty difficult issues around sex, although not everything was, was in there that I would have liked to be in there. And um, we saw a major uh, leap forward in terms of funding after that um, special session in the General Assembly. Right before, there had been a, a meeting of heads of state in Africa. All of them were there, also recognizing AIDS as one of the big threats to development in Africa. So funding has then um, gone up in a big way. Um, when UNAIDS was founded, about $250 million was spent on AIDS in developing countries. This year it was going to be about $10 billion. So a 40-fold increase in about 10 years. That's not bad, to say the least. It's unprecedented. Again, not enough. You need about, you know, by 2010 we'll need about $20 billion. But major, major um, progress. Um, so we're in the middle of a triple momentum. One, a political momentum. It's on the agenda of the G8, of just name it any top, uh, any summit you can think of. Um, a financial momentum. We're starting to see some results.
But it's all come very late. And there are days that I wonder, what, how would the world have um, you know, looked like in terms of AIDS? How many lives would have been saved if 10 years ago we would have had the same political will, the same money, or even a bit less, and the same action on the ground as we had today? You can bet that we would have saved tens of millions of, of lives. And a lesson of that is for future epidemics and new epidemics, because you can bet there will be new epidemics, in spite of what my professor said when I was in the la last year in medical school and trying to figure out what I would do um, professionally. And they said, oh, infectious diseases, that's all under control. And you know, then no future in infectious diseases. Fortunately, I don't always listen to what uh, wise people tell me, but uh, um, there will be more. And so the lesson is then, again, act early. Even if you don't really know you have, how bad it will become, don't take that risk. We've taken the, the price of inaction that we're paying now, that the world is paying in terms of AIDS, is, is extraordinarily high. Now, I started this afternoon also by saying that AIDS is forcing us to adopt new practices, look at things differently, transforming the way we do things. And... Um, let me give you a few examples now of that, how AIDS is not only exposing injustices, but also has overcome injustices and opened opportunities. A few examples. One from here, uh, and that's about rights. Take gay rights. Uh, the AIDS epidemic has undoubtedly helped to put gay rights uh, on the agenda and has helped to use that old-fashioned word, gay emancipation. Here it was already quite well advanced, but in many other countries, it's because of the AIDS epidemic that you could, we could put things on the table that weren't there before. Even today, the debate goes on. There are now countries in the Caribbean that are considering abolishing anti-sodomy laws. There's a huge debate going on in India about this. Without AIDS, I don't think that would have happened this way. And I hope the same thing will happen for women's rights. Remember what I said, how uh, catastrophic, how lethal um, gender inequality, the inferior position of women is in, in, in the world. And uh, I, I hope that, um, you know, women will say enough is enough. And uh, uh, that there will be stronger leadership now on women's issues and gender in the, uh, you know, in the countries where this is necessary, which is about everywhere in the world. Secondly, AIDS has given rise to a new culture of uh, activism, health activism, which hardly existed before, and um, accountability, and even promoting democracy. Um, if today, if last week, the deputy president of South Africa announced a new plan, action plan against AIDS, which is really good, after many years of denial, um, that's because of activism of the courts, of a democratic movement, I, I just described it. Um, and uh, we've been seeing this in many, many countries. We're seeing it in China, for example, where the official policy now says that uh, um, people living with HIV need to be supportive and, and, and so on. Um, and it clashes with the fact that there is still not much space for um, the voices of civil society um, 
in um, particularly in outside Beijing. But I think the door is open now. I find myself on podia with a, a president and a, uh, a person, a woman, poor woman living with HIV, maybe a sex worker, and uh, it was impossible. I remember uh, in the early days how um, there was a big fight every time when I would visit the country and I said one of the conditions for uh, an official visit, a state visit, is that I, have, that I meet with people who are infected, who are living with HIV, and that we have a meeting of them, of their representatives, and the top leadership. That's not in the tradition of many, many uh, societies and many uh, political systems. So that is new. Thirdly, um, AIDS is changing the face of, let's call it, international governance, bringing civil society to the heart of international debate and policy making. And we are working very hard on that. Last year, again in the UN General Assembly, there were like a thousand people from grassroots organizations. We fought for that. But then once everybody was there, we didn't know what to do with it, to be honest. And we still are facing with that new phenomenon in international relations, and that is that there's a powerful movement of what, you know, the political literature, scientific literature calls, uh, transnational civil society movements. You see it in the Green Movement, you see it, you know, around specific issues. AIDS is one of them, a very powerful one in the world. Um, how does that relate to decision-making? It's lobbying, but it's sometimes um, we have members of, uh, from civil society, from non-governmental organizations, mostly people living with HIV, on our board in UNAIDS. We're the only UN organization where our board of directors are not only governments, but also non-governmental organizations. That creates quite some tension there. But then you can see who is ultimately responsible and accountable. That, that introduces some new questions that we'll have to face uh, in international relations. And that's also one of the reasons, I think, that we are now being studied, UNAIDS. Now people start making a PhD on, a, on us, which is quite interesting. Um, and uh, to become, you know, I've studied so many things and now become the object of a study. Of stu and uh, not personally, but the, the organization. Because we're taken as a, an example of UN reform, of reform of the, the UN system, uh, because this the way we're doing business. A fourth example of uh, how AIDS is a factor of change is that take the international trade agreements and uh, intellectual property protection. The basis for innovation in, in today's world and in the pharmaceutical industry is protection of intellectual property. And I firmly believe that that's key uh, for innovation, for we need new drugs and in AIDS also you can bet that we will not only need second and third line uh, antiretroviral drugs, but fourth line and fifth line and uh, over the next decades. Um, and industry has produced there. But on the other hand, there's also the issue of access. Poor people, poor countries can't afford access to these drugs. And uh, there is an enormous tension there. Um, an ethical tension, an economic tension, a political tension. And um, for many years, I um, tried to obtain and negotiate a, a major price reduction, and we were quite successful if you look at it in, in terms of uh, negotiating, of bargaining. I mean, I'm not, 
I hate bargaining because my mother did it for anything, but I, you know, but on, I negotiated a 90% reduction in the price of antiretrovirals. You can say, that's wonderful. But when you go from, let's say, $12,000 to $1,000 or $500, that's still too high for, you know, great success in percentage, but not so great in absolute terms. And um, that is a, 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 uh, something there where we then needed some different ways. And, it, and the, the deal was the following one with pharmaceutical industry. We need you. We need innovation. Make your profits in rich countries. And in return for that and for the monopoly you get, because uh, patents provide you a monopoly for X years, in return for that, um, sell your products, your drugs, at a production plus cost for distribution and so price to developing countries. That's the social contract or the compact, if you want. And some of them are doing that, others not. But then in addition, the World Trade Organization um, reached an agreement in Doha um, in 2001, which was signed by all countries, including the US, and uh, which uh, allows um, countries that, have a, that are facing a public health emergency, such as AIDS, to uh, ignore the patents, to give some fair compensation to the patent holder, and to also import generic uh, versions of these drugs produced in India, for example, which is the... And then following that, uh, the Clinton Foundation is, uh, you know, has shaved off further dollars in the price. And yesterday, President Clinton announced another price reduction. This is a, quite a revolution in international trade agreements and in intellectual protection, uh, where it, it really says, in some cases, you can invoke uh, in, in, in health. Before it was only done for security issues and in military applications. You can also invoke that for, for, for health issue, and particularly for AIDS. So AIDS broke that open. Finally, um, AIDS is also an issue now for for, uh, for foreign policy, a core uh, issue. It's Colin Powell who uh, ensured that every American ambassador today um, has a good brief on AIDS, and they can talk about AIDS. They, it's part of their of their brief and about their of their core business, just as trade and their security and what have you. Um, and that, unfortunately, is not being followed yet by most other countries. Um, and, uh, and I think it's, uh, when you look at uh, famous Stanford alumna, uh, Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, who said that she calls the fight to eradicate AIDS one of the great moral callings of our time. And again, at every briefing, retreat, and so on of ambassadors, of US ambassadors, AIDS is on that agenda, together with all the rest that we, we know. Um, and in uh, last month, or two months ago, uh, seven foreign ministers across the world issued the Oslo Ministerial Declaration. And this document described global health as one of the most pressing and neglecting foreign policy issues of our time and focusing again on AIDS. So this opens a new area, I think, also in foreign policy and foreign relations that we need to do. So, and I think we'll see some more positive changes uh, over the years uh, coming out of, of AIDS. Now, let me end by saying a few words, what about the future? 
Our immediate priority in your needs, and that's the mantra for every staff member, is making the money work for people. That's what we say. $10 billion, making sure it reaches the people on the ground. It doesn't get stuck in capitals, in bureaucracies, it disappears in bank accounts in some countries I won't name, and, uh, the, uh, and that it's, it's, it's used for the right things. That is the immediate priority. But it's also time that we're adding a long-term view to our current crisis management. And the challenges that we're facing are, are formidable. Because we have to just be, bear in mind that AIDS is not going to disappear one fine day. It's going to be with us for decades and decades and decades. And uh, we haven't really thought through what are the implications of our current policies and actions. Um, and we haven't thought through a number of questions like, okay, great, two million people on antiretroviral therapy in poor countries, but 10, 20, 30 years from now, who's going to pay for that? Will there be new drugs? How are we going to introduce uh, new uh, technologies? Um, how are we going to ensure um, political leadership, knowing very well that the half-life of any political commitment is very short? knowing that budgets are made on an annual fiscal basis, the, the, the fiscal year basis. Now, you can't deal with a thing like AIDS on a fiscal year basis, you know. Lifelong treatment and prevention is also for life. How are we going to, we can't continue with um, a situation where for every person that is put on antiretroviral therapy in the world today, there are eight new infections. That is not sustainable. That means we're not going to be able to stop the epidemic that way. We have to do, get really serious about HIV prevention. When are we going to get serious about the fundamental drivers of this epidemic? I mentioned gender inequality in the first place. Um, how can we speed up science and technology and the introduction of um, what comes out of it, of R&D, um, in, in developing countries? So we really need a long-term investment plan now that we are starting to get over the, you know, the immediate crisis management, we have to add to that our long-term uh, perspective. That's why I'm launching now a, uh, an initiative that's called AIDS 2031. 2031, because it will be 50 years uh, after the first description of AIDS. We're halfway now. I'm bringing together a consortium of uh, players from various disciplines, uh, from across the world and looking at possible future scenarios not to wait until 2031 to deal with this but to look at the implications of today and to make sure that we are going to make investments today that will guarantee the best possible outcome 10, 20, 30 years from now when it comes to, to the, Google, to the uh, AIDS response. And that, this is going to, we'll have to, com to challenge conventional wisdom we need out-of-the-box thinking. We need more of the same. More people should be on treatment. More condoms should be available. More needles should be available for drug users and so on. That's for sure. But we need to also look at it. What is going to make the ultimate difference uh, in, the long, in the long term? And um, we're going to have a look also at what will it mean for young people today to grow up in a world of AIDS. Um, in October, we'll have an event here with Google 
um, bringing together young people and preparing it through the enormous reach and access that, uh, that Google has. So AIDS offers opportunities to um, change old assumptions, it has already done that, adopt new ways of doing things, and I'm convinced that we will need the brightest minds of our time to end this epidemic. And don't think if you're not in uh, health or in medicine that you don't have anything to contribute. In UNAIDS, only 20% of uh, our professionals have a medical background. We've got as many economists and political scientists and lawyers and what have you. Um, because we'll need the input from various disciplines to really come to, um, to major, major impact. And um, that's why I have high expectations also that Stanford, in addition to what you're already doing, that uh, you're going to really give a major boost to your act activities and drawing on your formidable expertise in, in various disciplines that I think have not been fully utilized in the fight against AIDS. So that's my appeal to you, to both the, the future leaders and the, and the ones that are now in charge. Thank you very much for listening. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.